That's right, I am your ghost host, Kurt Sandvig, on a special edition Halloween Paranormal Almanac. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Lori Jacobson, reformed stand-up, Hollywood historian, and writer. So let's get right into this one. I would like to introduce my guest, Lori Jacobson, who has written a number of books in Hollywood, including Timmy's in the Well, The John Provost Story, Dishing Hollywood, The Real Scoop on Tinseltown's Most Notorious Scandals, Hollywood Heartbreak, The Tragic and Mysterious Deaths of Hollywood's Most Remarkable Legends, and my personal favorite of hers, Hollywood Haunted, A Ghostly Tour of Filmland. Like I said, I'm going to get right into this one, so let's jump right in to the interview. Tell me when you got interested in the ghostly aspect of Hollywood, the haunted aspect of Hollywood. I had spent a lot of time covering unsolved mysteries in Hollywood, Um, unexplained deaths, uh, sometimes uh, uh, murder written off as suicide, um, scandalous uh, crimes, and there were always ghost stories attached to those kinds of stories. Um, and I kind of filed those away as, as part of Hollywood's lore, and then one day I was getting a tour of the Chinese theater. Um, I was part of an historical society, and we were going to give a walking tour of Hollywood Boulevard's grand movie palaces. Oh, very cool. So, say again? Very cool. I actually work right across the street from the Man's Chinese Theater. Oh, what a lovely view you have. Oh, definitely. That's really Hollywood history. So we were very excited. Uh, you know, we got to go to Sid Grauman's office, and it, it oh, was wow. really cool. And we go into the uh, auditorium, and I, I'm with maybe five, four or five other historians and this guide. And she explains to us that in the 20s, a live stage show happened before the film, and that, of course, today the screens are much bigger, so a great amount of stage space, and did anybody want to go up there? And I thought, well, I'm never going to get this opportunity again, so I'm the only one that wants to. I climb up, I go behind the movie screen, I look around, it's just basically storage, I climb down, I am just getting to those people, and... Without a word, all of us were silently compelled to turn around and face the stage. Huh. And where where I had, I, I'm not kidding you, it just happened. And where I had been standing was a ceiling-to-floor velvet drape. And someone we could not see who was standing on the six-foot-high stage had grasped the drape in two hands, lifted that section of the drape off the floor and was violently and angrily shaking it. Oh, wow. It wasn't wasn't just, yoo-hoo, you know, the vase (laughs) moved from one side to the other. No, I felt a lot of emotion, and I set a new land speed record that day (laughs) running away. Um, and I, you know, I analyzed it over and over, and 
you know, it was definitely the emotion that I felt in the uh, movement. So uh, I find out after my book came out, after Hollywood Haunted came out, um, someone came to a book signing and said, I know about that guy holding the curtain. <gasps> what do you know? And she said his name was Fritz, and he used to work in the theater, and he chose to take his life in the theater, and guess where? Oh, wow. He hung himself behind the movie screen. And those curtains aren't light. I mean, those I've I've not not that one, but I've done other velvet curtains or hold or or touched other velvet curtains at other old theaters. Those weigh a ton. Yeah. It, oh yes. And and they you know and there was no open door. It was not blowing in the breeze. We were the only people in there. There there was absolutely no other explanation. And so when you choose to kill yourself in a public place whether, you know, to punish the people that work there or who knows what his reasons were. But that was his spot. He thought and thought about that, and he picked that spot, and he let me know he did not like me going back there. Wow. I, I got the message loud <laughs> and clear. So you said you... you, know, you... Not, I had some other encounters but I, once I started the book, then I thought, after that happened, I thought, well, now I'm getting up those books and going back to all these places, which I did with parapsychologists and psychics. And we had some amazing experiences with smells and sounds and lights, but um, nothing frightened me like that frightened me. But you said you ran away at first, so... What drew you back to the paranormal? If you were, you know, rightfully so, to be afraid, but if you were afraid initially, what drew you to it, do you think? I think, you know, that I was, that first time, I was just really startled. Um, it happened so fast to feel an emotion connected with it. You know, usually when I spoke to people who had seen ghosts, they would describe what they saw, and then I would ask them to take a breath and say, but what, what did you feel? Sure. Oh, that's right. Oh, you know, I was really sad or, you know, so, um, I, it just happened so fast that the anger, uh, was what drove me away in a big strap and hurry. But, um, I didn't have that experience, uh, after that. I didn't have anything that scared me just that I found really fascinating. Oh sure. Uh, last week, actually, the past couple of weeks, I've been I've, I've become friends with David Omen. Are you familiar with David Omen at all? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Have you ever been to his house? Oh yes. Oh, is that right? What did you think of David's house? Um. Um. I think it's really incredible what's going on there. Um. I think that it can make you very sick. Yes. If you're around it too much, I took my husband with me, and uh, on one occasion, and he um, really doesn't do a lot of ghost ghost hunting, <laughs> but he thought, "Hey, this will be cool," and uh, he had a terrible headache from the moment he walked in until he left. No kidding. And for me, the first time I went to David's house, and for for those of your listeners who aren't aren't sure who he is. 
he owns a house, uh, what, two or three doors down um, on Cielo Drive yes. from uh, where the Mansons killed Sharon Tate and her friends. And many of the people on the street have seen uh, spirits of those that were killed, or at least some of them. And the minute I drove up the street and approached David's house, I mean, I could feel it out on the street. That's interesting you say that because a lot of people that I've been, like I said, I've been there a few times now. And a couple of times that I've been there, there's been multiple people there. And instantly, like you, like you just said, the second they get it to that street, pull up to the house, they instantly feel something or somebody. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really weird. All of there's some really weird things. Have ha- so here's the question, Kurt. Okay, here's the big question. Benedict's Canyon. I was just going to ask you this question. <laughs> please, you know, please. There, it, within standing on that spot um, at the the Tate Polanski house and looking out, I, you can point to the scenes of other weird deaths. Oh God, yeah, yeah. That, that's what I was just going to ask you. How can it be? And, and it's something that I really want to do some research on if I can and figure out why, but. How can it be that such a small section of Benedict Canyon seems so connected to so many unsolved or uh, mysterious deaths and hauntings? Yes. You know, so sort of, to me, which came first? You know, did, I mean, there were bizarre, mysterious deaths in that area before that, long before that. Oh, sure. And, you know, at the entrance to Benedict Canyon, there um, there was a uh, some kind of Indian slaughter. And when they were digging to make the roads to go up to Benedict Canyon, they found uh, Native American bodies buried. Well, that right there would uh, that already make makes me feel like there's going to be something happening because, as you know, uh, a lot of the times it's tied to you know, messing with Indian burial grounds or Native American people or their bodies. So, I mean, I've had many episodes where I, I, as soon as I get to that, you know, check mark of a Native American atrocity was here, you know, it's, it instantly goes to, and this place is haunted, not surprisingly. But, you know, with like, with Gene Harlow's house connected to Sharon Tate and Rudolph Valentino, and I mean, there's so, and George Reeves, I mean, there's so much concentrated in one small section of Benedict Canyon that, you're right. What did come first? That's really interesting. I like that. Yeah, you know, is it just, you know, was was it already there, you know, and then on the highest point in Benedict Canyon is the worst, m- most heinous crime? Really, I mean, that, that is kind of ranked up there in, you know, the top five most heinous crimes in the history of our country. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, brutality you know, alone. So- Say again. The brutality alone. I mean, they they oh. made it as brutal as they possibly could. It was horrific. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, and I was, uh, you know, I, I I lived through that time. I'm not sure how old you are, but I mean, you know, the city of Los Angeles changed overnight after that. You know, we were. Hey, it was the '60s. It was the height of the '60s. 
you know, Sharon Tate's doors weren't locked. Those people walked right in. You know, that's the way it was. Oh, yeah. Now, did um, you did you grow up in Hollywood or around the area? No, actually, I'm from St. Louis. Oh, okay. Um, I moved, but I visited constantly because we had family there, and um, I was there uh, during the trials. Uh, oh, wow. And, um, you know, and, I, and, my, and I'm, I stay with my aunt, who to this day lives on Benedict Canyon, and I thought, this is so creepy that they, like, drove right by here. Wow, no kidding. I didn't realize that. You know, and it, and and I knew people. I knew people later that had been um, waitresses at the Whiskey A Go Go, and Tex Watson was the doorman there um, for a number of months. Uh, and you know that that's where they were recruiting young people to take them back to the spa ranch. You know, so. They were all over. Uh, they were all over, and they touched a lot of people that, um, you know, when I got there in the early 70s, were still influenced. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know? Now, now so, did you move out here because you wanted to be, as you call yourself, a reformed stand-up comedian? Did you move out here to be a stand-up comedian? Um, I moved out, out here to be an actress. Oh, okay. And... And, and I found my way to, and comedy was really more my thing, and I found my way to this wonderful workshop called the Harvey Lembeck Comedy Workshop, and there were some unknown um, actors we thought might do well in class, uh, Robin Williams, John Ritter, wow. John La Roquette. Um, it was a really, really wonderful time right before those guys broke and, you know, seeing their unbridled talent in class. And, and, you, um, and you saw it not only in class, but you also saw it at the comedy store, too, correct? Yes, yes. And, you know, naturally and, and totally immersed in the comedy world. So I um, got a job cocktail waitressing. I was the worst. <laughs> I was very friendly, <laughs> but, you know, just I couldn't carry a tray with one hand no matter what I tried to do. So um, I was terribly slow, but very nice about it. But um, but you were but, lucky you, know, the, you were lucky the, enough to see the best of the best, though, while you're being a slow, very nice waitress, though. Oh, my God. It was so amazing. Like, my, you know, Richard Pryor was there every night. Wow. He was practicing for a film he made called Lock on the Sunset Strip. Sure. So he was doing his routine every night, and everyone in the world was coming in to see him. So going to work was amazing because you you know you ran to the guest list to see, you know, or or I remember standing there and being nudged and I turned around and it was Mick Jagger and a bunch oh, of wow. people coming in and I thought oh my god, you know and um, Sugar Ray Leonard and um, Jimmy Connors and wow. Peter O'Toole and Bette Midler and. I it, it was just everyone. Everyone, every profession, everybody came in to see Richard Pryor. It was really... And then, you know, all the other people that went on from there that I was seeing every night, Jerry Seinfeld and Arsenio Hall and Gary Shandling and Jay Man. Leno and wow. Andrew Dice Clay and Sam Kinison. And all these guys were just starting out, except for Leno. 
Oh, sure. Now, now, since I brought up the comedy store, you know I have to ask you, did you have any paranormal experiences at the comedy store? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that place is really, really haunted. Um, and, and I'm not the only one. I mean, there were, you know, crowds of people who had paranormal experiences there. Um, for example, there's a small room upstairs called the belly room. Mm -hmm. And, um, one way, one waitress is all it takes up there. So you go up there when the, uh, you're setting up and you we had to put a tablecloth on the table and an ashtray and a candle. And then we would have to light all the candles. So, you know, one night a waitress goes up, does her job, comes downstairs uh, for a cigarette, goes back upstairs, everything put away. That's amazing. And so she turns around and yells down the stairs, who was screwing with the belly room? And she turns back and it's all back. I mean, she wow. just turned her back. So, you know, that was just what, you know, we, we thought we, we would hear people playing the piano in there after the room was locked. And we thought it was mice. We put cats in there and they truly begged, just screamed and begged to get out of there. Oh, really? And, you know, and that's just that one room. Um, there were, you know, there were men in um, pinstripe wide lapel suits, very 40s, going in and out of the offices. Um, once I was doing a piece on the ghosts there for one one of the L.A. news stations on Halloween, and the psychic, the parapsychologist that I was with saw a whole table of men watching, watching wow. the filming. And then he turned back, and they were gone. And it turns out it was a booth, and nobody could have been standing there. And then he realized they were all in pinstripe wide lapel suits. And so sometimes they just stop by like any curious person. Now, did besides like the the uh, you know messing with the the tablecloths and everything. Did they ever interact with people or was it just like you just saw them and they were going about their daily routine or do you think they actually saw us today? Um, it was both. Uh, those people did not really interact, but um, do you remember Sam Kinison? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. All right, well, they hated his act. <laughs> they hated the shouting. I was going to say the screaming, and, right? I knew it. Yes. And whenever he went on, things went on. You know, the light, 30 people would go on before Sam. Sam would come on. The the sound would fail. The lights would go out. So the equipment would somehow go down. Um, and uh, sometimes things flew across the room, like ashtrays flew wow. across the room and shattered against the wall. You know, and... and um, people heard heard complaints. <laughs> it's him. It's him. I can't stand him. So I like to say that Sam is the only, only comic I knew who was heckled from beyond. No kidding. That's amazing. <laughs> and you know, he was a preacher. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Before he became so a comedian, he, yeah. He had, he had this weird, you know, there was something strange going on there. 
Now, was anyone ever afraid to be in the comedy store with all of that activity? You think that there'd be a lot of like, I'm not going upstairs. I'm not going to the basement because I know the basement is supposed to be very haunted as well. Yeah, the basement is where people were afraid to go. So one night, this wonderful comic, Blake Clark, who um, was also, I'd li- he was also uh, security. He locked up the, the store every night when people, after everyone was gone. So he often saw, um, a lot, he often saw the activity um, that we didn't see when the club was filled with a couple hundred people. You know, he was alone in the place. He would see ghosts sticking their head around the corner, wow. looking at him leaving to make sure, yeah, he's gone. Wow. <laughs> Free for all. <laughs> But um, one night he was um, locking up, and it was only he and the bartender, and they were in the hallway, and the basement only had a, um, uh, you know, a grate across it. It didn't have a solid door, like one of those freight elevator grates. And all of a sudden, the grate started pushing out into the hallway, and they could see the black shadow of a man and they heard this horrible noise and they thought the whole thing was going to pull out of the wall and suddenly the grates snapped back and they saw standing in front of them a uh, like six and a half foot black shadow of a man making a horrible noise and coming toward them. Oh my so, God. Needless to say, they got the hell out of there as fast <laughs> as they could. Now, cut to, you know, several weeks later, Betsy Shore, God rest her soul, she just passed away. Yeah. Um, she tells Blake, uh, go down go down to and get me some supplies. And he goes, uh-uh, I'm not going down there. And she says, it's the daytime. I'm not going down there. She said, take some friends. So he took two people, and he goes down to the basement, and they are no sooner down there than one of the people holds his hands up and is screaming at a corner of the room, no, no, get away, stay away. And Blake sees nothing this time, but he doesn't have to see because he knows what the guy is saying. So he grabs his friend's hands, and they are burning hot. Oh, wow. Like they had been held against a stove. But yet the three guys in the room could see their breath, like it was freezing. The guy holding his hands up, he saw this black, inky thing rising up from the corner. And as they are scrambling up the stairs to get out of there, this piece of cardboard drops from out of nowhere hits Blake on the hands, he picks it up, and it had his name. Oh, wow. And that freaking terrified me. Well, yeah. Because it's not just a thing, it's a thinking thing, and it knows your name. I was just going to say, and it knows you. That I mean, that is interaction right there. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that really... That you know, I heard all kinds of stories and sightings there, but that one really terrified me the most. I was it knew his name. Oh God! Yeah. Where did that piece of cardboard come from? I, I was lucky enough years ago to to meet Mitzi, and I was talking to her about the paranormal, and you know, she was 
nice enough to let me walk through the comedy store in the afternoon before it really got busy. And it is a very eerie place for such a, you know, happy comedic place with all of the history that goes on there. It's still, there's something eerie about it. There's a a back hallway that was really eerie as well. I would love to do a full-on investigation or do a recording of my podcast from there just to see, just to get a couple of those personal experiences like you had, because that's just incredible. There, you know, there's the small room, which is called the original room, and then there's a much larger room called the main room. Yes. And Blake saw, you know, Blake would was would be closing up and he noticed uh, the light at the back of the stage was left on so he would cross the room climb the stage turn off the light turn around and 40 chairs were piled up on the stage behind him unbelievable you know really i mean you know he would just tippy toe out of there (laughs) (laughs) he was a, a platoon sergeant in vietnam you know, he is a brave guy, but he did not know what the hell he was dealing with there. And it, it seems to be happening to this day, because I know, I know Joe Rogan has talked about it. I know a number of, like, newer comedians, if you will, have also talked about it. I mean, they've heard the legends, but then they've also had experiences there. So it seems like the comedy store is still as active as ever. When, well? When was the last time you were there? Yeah, um, I haven't been there for a while. A number, it's been a number of years. Not not terribly long, but a couple of years. Um, but, you know, it hasn't changed. Nothing about it has changed. Remodeling is upsetting to ghosts, just like it is to, <laughs> to us. Oh, people, sure. You know? It's a pain in the, the ass. It's <laughs> noisy. It's dusty. Um, you know, they haven't remodeled in the comedy store in forever. You know, so there has really been no activity that would kick up um, uh, apparitions or sure. um, or drop them out. Now, now, and I think they're really comfortable there. Oh, they seem to be. Apparently, yeah. From all the stories I hear, yeah, they are very comfortable there. It's incredible. I can't believe that there hasn't been. I know there's been quite a few, but still, you'd think there'd be a paranormal investigation there you know, fairly often, almost every every month, if you will. It always surprises me that it's still just not as tapped as it should be, as far as I'm concerned, or investigated with cameras and whatnot. When you did Hollywood Haunted, um, were there any sites that you wanted to go to that you just couldn't get into? Hmm. You know, not that I recall. You know, when I wrote Hollywood Haunted, I'm trying to think. uh, I think it came out in... 1994, and it was in print for 20 years, which I'm really proud of. Oh, it's a great book. I've, I I bought it in probably the mid-90s, so probably right around when it first came out. So, you know, it was before all of these television shows with, you know, Ghost Hunters. And, sure. Um, it was really right before the... Uh, the the craze, should I call it, or the mass, <laughs> the mass interest in ghosts. So people weren't wary when I called them. They, they let me into their homes and things. And then sometimes they regretted it because after they talked about it, the activity uh, kicked up and stuff. And then I, I felt so badly <laughs> for them. But it's so fa- oh, 
was no everybody let me in and it was awesome i was gonna say because it seemed like you had pretty much unfettered access to some of the most haunted sites in hollywood that has to be an incredible feeling to know that you got like you said like you got in before the craze happened but you also had that access where today it's very difficult to get access to some of these locations Yes, and yes, and that's, you know, like, that was because I was in the first wave, you know, of people, and, uh, you know, now, I, you know, even after my book came out, all those little places got hit up, and, you know, can we investigate, can we come, you know, suddenly... Oh, I'm just uh, as guilty as any of them. Your book inspired me as well to start, you know, hitting some of them up. Now, have you thought about doing a sequel to it? Um... You know, I've thought about it, but that's as far as it went. There's so many books out now. Sure, no, um, that is true. But for, but your your take on it, I guess, is, you know, if I can say, I, I enjoyed your take on it. It was a very... See, I love Hollywood history. I absolutely love it. The old school Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood, I love everything about it. I love going to the buildings that are still open, you know, the Cicada restaurant, wherever. And you had a paranormal interest but you also had that hollywood history interest that that's what i appreciated oh thank you yes and of course and that's where it all came from from and i was so lucky like i was just thinking back when you were speaking um one of the people i wrote about was uh bela lugosi oh sure and um there was a uh, very unusual occurrence at his funeral and I did this book so long ago that the people that ran the funeral home, who were Hungarian, who were friends with him, um, were still able, were still around and able to tell me uh, about his funeral and who came. And, you know, and wow. sometimes I just couldn't believe my luck. And that I, you would actually find someone to... Um, you know, to be able to fill in all those stories. Oh, sure. And then they sh- they shared with me the uh, the weird occurrence that happened at his funeral. Do you, Do you mind if I ask you what that occurrence is, or should we Not get the or should we just Not get the book? Not at all. He, uh, this funeral home was um, on on Argyle and Hollywood Boulevard, and Bela loved to walk that one block from Vine Street to Argyle every day. It was He was really a man of tradition, and he loved to do that every day. He got, when he was in the money, he got his cigars and, his, you know, Variety and the Reporter and said hello to all of his friends and ended up with the Hungarians at the funeral home and talking with them. And uh, when he didn't have any money, he was trolling that area for drugs and um, and was in t- pretty sad shape. Uh, so high or low, this was his spot. So on the day of the funeral, and he's laid out in, you know, t- his tails and the Dracula cape and the Dracula ring and... Peter Laurie and Vincent Price, uh, you know, everyone is there. Um, after the service, they put Bela's coffin into the hearse, and the hearse was to drive across 
Hollywood Boulevard and go along Franklin. Mm -hmm. um, shop owners had complained that a funeral procession down Hollywood Boulevard kind of killed business. So they had that agreement. However, when the driver got to the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Argyle, he lost control of the car. And it drove itself. Wow. It made it left onto Hollywood Boulevard and slowly drove down this favorite stretch of Bela's as if to have his one last goodbye. I love that. And, uh, and then... And then returned control of the car where he, you know, turned off the boulevard and went the way he was supposed to go. So, you know, she ta talked to me about the driver and, how, you know, how he insisted that he could not turn the wheel. He could. It was really, you wow. know, dramatic. See, that's, I love that. I absolutely love that story. And it is so Bella Lugosi that I absolutely, it's, it's perfect. It is the perfect ending to yeah. his life. Yeah, that poor guy. Now, do you think that there are any more tales from, from golden era of Hollywood that we'll ever find out? Or do you think that they've all kind of, you know, we've heard all of the tales? Well, hmm. In terms of scandals and mysteries and things like that? Or, or... just, or just you know, um, the, 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 I guess the personal lives of, or the, you know, those little idios idiosyncrasies like that, like Bella had. Um, the idiosyncrasies of, uh, you know, golden era of Hollywood. Do you think they're all, all of those tales have been told and they're gone? Or do you think there's any that are still out there? Because, you know, there are still some people um, living mostly in assisted living f that are from the 20s, 30s and 40s of Hollywood still. But I don't know if there's any if there's time enough left to get any more of these these anecdotes. Yes. Or or their memory isn't as clear. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that was, uh, you know, I started working with in documentaries early, you know. Uh, I would talk to these amazing women who were friends with um, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Wow. Talked about the trial and how they were cautioned by the studio not to stand up for him. And they fought, but he's our friend. And we don't want to lose you, too guilt by association you can't stand up for him and, you know just these amazing inside stories um and you know yeah they're going to be harder and harder to find now it's such a shame because there's there's so many lost tales that, that i would love to have heard oh yes and though there are tales that will never be told oh exactly now was there anything that you were told while you were writing this book or the or your other books that you were like, well, I can't, I can't really share that because I mean, you did some scandals, you did heartbreaks, you I mean, you did a lot of stuff, but were there any tales that you didn't share in your book for one reason or another? Hmm. And you don't have to tell me. I'm just curious if you had any. Um, I, I didn't name the person that I believe killed um, an actress named Inger Stevens. I, I'm not sure if you know who, who she was. I, just do, a, I don't, to be honest with you. I don't. But now, when you said you didn't name the person, is it because he was still around? It was because they were alive, and now they're not. <laughs> so, um, so she was a, a really popular, gorgeous Swedish oh, blonde. Oh, she was in Hang'em High. I do know exactly who you're That's talking right. about. That's yes. right. Yes. 
She and Steve McQueen, she was the star of a television series called The Farmer's Daughter. Farmer's Daughter, yes, I know exactly who you're talking about, yes. And and at the same time, um, Steve McQueen was the star of Wanted Dead or Alive. Mm-hmm. And at that time, television had a taint to it. Only people who couldn't get movies did television. Sure. And, te- and film acts were afraid to appear on television. Um, so she and Steve McQueen were the first to um, start moving into film from television. And uh, she did hang them high, and then she died. So uh, that is why she, you know, she she would have gone to much more. But um, they wrote it off as a suicide. But if you just look at the things in her house, um, the way, what was, you know, she was making a sandwich. Wow. You know, so, uh, you know, she had a very, very, she was leading a double life in that she was this magnificent blonde beauty. Um in the early to mid-60s, and she was married to a black man. Oh, wow. And they lived in Malibu, where, you know, quietly, and if she ever had to appear in public, she went with her agent. And he, you know, he was getting aced out of the deal. She was getting more famous and more popular, and he was being swept to the side more. He was a big UCLA football star, and... uh you know, I I just don't think he liked what was going on. Wow. And he, you know, came over to her. You know, listen, she, it was just, you know, she had appointments with people for the next day. She had plans. Um, you know, sadly, she asked a friend to spend the night, and the friend was not able to. And, uh, you know, there is this half-made sandwich. I mean, come on, who makes a, a sandwich and says, you know, I think I'll kill myself. Exactly. In the middle of, you know, I don't want to finish this sandwich. Instead, I want to kill myself. I agree with you 100%. That is, yeah, no, that's just so telling. But I also think that, I mean, I'm I'm one of the people, and I know I'm not the only one, that I don't believe that George Reeves killed himself either. No, I don't believe he did either. It's th- um, and I was allowed into that house a couple of years ago, which was I was so excited. Oh wow, really? It's so tiny. I mean, it's hard to believe that anybody could be in that house and you not know about it. You know, they talk about the, you know seeing him at the top of the staircase. There's like five stairs. Wow. And a little landing, and on one side of the landing is the master bedroom, and on the other side of the landing is the guest bedroom. I mean, it was tiny, but uh, he had been really upset. Uh, There were bullet holes all over the house before the murder. That's what I heard, yeah. There's still one in the wooden uh, mantel. Wow. And he had shot into the floor. I don't know what was going on. I know he he was arguing with his um, girlfriend. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and, and somebody paid her big money because this is, she was really abroad, you know. She got drunk and she got 86 from clubs for the rest of her life. She was just, 
you know, a wild showgirl with a wild temper and a drinking problem, and somehow George Reaped gets killed while she's in the house, and you never hear from her again? That's true, yeah. No, you're not wrong there. I don't even know where she went, you know. So somebody paid her big money, get out of Los Angeles, and don't ever come back. It's so... It's so bizarre that, that that was the kind of control that Hollywood had back in the day. I mean, with Marilyn Monroe and George Reeves. I mean, you hear, you hear it all over the place, even with uh, Jean Harlow and her husband. I mean, they controlled the media. They controlled the news, really. And they controlled your life very often. You know, Judy Garland's very first husband was uh, an orchestra leader named David Rose. She was 20, she was happy, oh, no, no, he's not right for you. This this has to end. And basically, they just made her schedule so intense um, that the marriage uh, couldn't survive. And then when she ended up pregnant before the end of the marriage, well, we'll just take care of that, too. Wow. You know, and imagine being 20 and being h- hustled like that and, you know... Well, you can't imagine. I yeah, no, I, you're you're right there. It's it's just and it's so alien to me that it's just bizarre that 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 it happened and it happened for so long. Some say it's still happening to a certain degree in Hollywood. Yeah, well, you you know we're right in the thick of it now, aren't we? It's true. It's, it's really amazing the changes because you know the casting couch has been there since the word go. Oh, that is very true. Yeah, and, and it was bound to happen, but boy, did it happen in a big way this past couple of years. Yeah. Now, yeah, I, everything's changed. Now, I know you don't consider yourself a paranormal investigator, per se, even though, in my opinion, you've done some of the best paranormal investigating back in the day before it even became a thing. Is there anything out there that you would like to investigate that's in the paranormal you know, aspects? Is there any place worldwide? It doesn't have to necessarily be Hollywood. Is there something, or is it just not, it doesn't interest you? Oh, you know, now if I'm only going to get one, I would really have to think long and hard. Because, <laughs> you know, when I'm in an area where something is renowned, um, you know, I was in Eureka Springs, Missouri, and there's a hotel at the top of the hill up there that's, you know, supposed to be one of the most haunted places in the States. And so I'm going there. Hell yeah, I'm oh, going excellent. there. And we uh, we went to London um, a few years ago, and we did a Jack the Ripper tour. Oh yeah, I'm going there. <laughs> Good, so it still does attract you. I like that. I like the fact that you didn't leave it all behind. It's, a, you know, it's, it's an amazing path to walk. It is history. You know, some people may call it morbid, but the... The occurrences on on these sites they changed they changed things they changed the way people think the way they feel uh, and and something that has that kind of effect on people you know why do people do people go to the Dakota and stand yes. in front of it sure they do yeah. something incredibly moving and happened there. I, I I found myself, when I went to New York, I was just walking around Central Park and didn't know where the Dakota was. It was before GPS and all that. And I found myself just at the Dakota. You know, I just, all of a sudden, it was right there in front of me. And it was still 
you know, years later, so emotional because John Lennon was my favorite Beatle and being there where it happened, where it sadly happened, it was just, yeah, you're right. It's still overwhelming, even though there shouldn't be any more connection other than that's where it happened. But there's, there still is. You're right. Yeah, there's something to me about about the place where someone left this world, you know, and um, some kind of pull there. So... Yeah, I agree. For me, you know, some people think it's ghoulish. For me, you know, I it's a it's a way of paying respect and um sure. Just seeing uh if I if I can feel anything from from the spot. Yeah. Yeah, it's that it's that connection to well, for me it was a connection to a musical idol. Like like I said, he was my favorite Beatle. I've been a Beatles fan my entire life and to be there where it happened, where, well, for me, it was where he lived, where he lived and where he walked through the park and just that connection to this was his area. This was his scene. It was, it was definitely moving. I agree. Yeah, you, you're definitely walking in the footsteps of history. Exactly. And I think, again, that kind of brings me back to what I was saying earlier. And I, 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 I think that's why I like your books, because it did that. It brought me to the Walking in the Footsteps of History. That was one of the first tours I did of Disneyland was the Walk in Walt's Footsteps tours. I mean, I love that walking in their footsteps. That's a great way of putting it. Oh, that's so neat. Well, I thank you so much. I don't want to keep you too much longer. I really appreciate your time. We, I didn't realize we've gone almost an hour. I really apologize for taking up so much of your time. Oh, no problem. I've enjoyed it. Oh. I'm a chatterbox. Oh, no, I've, I've I I got to say I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for being so accommodating for doing this for me. So once again, that was the wonderful Lori Jacobson. I can't thank her enough for chatting with me about Hollywood, about haunted Hollywood, and about everything in between. You can find her books on Amazon.com. It's Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E, Jacobson. And like I said at the very, very beginning... Her book, Hollywood Haunted, A Ghostly Tour of Filmland, is one of my favorites. If you like Hollywood, you like the history of Hollywood, and obviously, hopefully, you like haunted Hollywood because you're listening to this, I guarantee you, you will love her book. And the rest of her books, too. Now, with that, let's get to shout-outs. I put them at the end of this episode because I wanted to get right into Lori Jacobson's interview. So we got Sarah, Nanashi, Rodney, Michaela, Jeff, Lash, Martin, Jim, Jory, David, Jade, Megan, Laura, Laura, Shani, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Kira, Rich, Rachel, Laura, Angie, Anthony, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, Dill, Edgar, Heidi, Jeff, Juliana, Kat, Laura P, Laura O, Lindsay, Maggie, hi Maggie, Matt, Pablo, and Carolyn. Once again, you can go to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac to support the show there. You can also find the links on my Facebook and on paranormalalmanac.com to go and buy merch. All proceeds go to help this show and help me make this show even better for you every week. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another special edition of Paranormal Almanac.
Allahi that.